0: occupation stand-up philosopher what stand-up philosopher i coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension oh a
1: bullshit artist
0: Hello, and welcome to the first encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado, and in a moment, I'll be joined in conversation with my co-host, Jack Crittenden. But first, since this is our inaugural episode, let me take just a minute to read this explanation of the overall concept behind the podcast and what you can expect from each episode going forward. I'm a PhD candidate in the philosophy and education program at Teachers College, Columbia University in the city of New York. Jack obtained his doctorate in political theory at Oxford University and is now Professor Emeritus at Arizona State University. Now, as you can imagine based on that description, there is about a 40-year age gap between the two of us, which we hope will make for a compelling and unique listening experience for our audience, just as it is made for a compelling and unique friendship for the two of us. At this point, Jack and I have known each other for over 10 years, first as teacher-student, and later as friends. Throughout the course of this friendship, we've had many wide-ranging conversations together, typically over coffees at a cafe. But now, and especially in light of the ongoing pandemic, we've been seeking a new venue for these chats, and it occurred to us, why not just do them over Zoom and turn them into some kind of experimental podcast? So, we'll record a new two-hour-long episode every other week And for each one, we'll conduct ourselves in the same manner we would have if we were still meeting for coffees at that cafe, except now we'll be meeting virtually in New York City's Sakura Park. That is, we'll be dialoguing together about those topics that interest us most, politics, philosophy, current events, and the human condition. Of course, and unavoidably, we'll also touch on some personal topics where we think that those may be of more general interest. But as a rule, these conversations will be organic, spontaneous, free-flowing, open-ended, and unstructured. For, just as Socrates says to Adamantus in Plato's Republic, neither Jack nor I will know ahead of time exactly what we'll be discussing, but rather, quote, wherever the argument blows us, that's where we must go, unquote. So, wherever these conversations go, they'll be presented to you, our audience, in medias race, and with minimal editing. And at the very real risk of drastically overhyping our talents, we hope that, at our best, we can offer to you with this podcast something like the lighthearted verbal jousting of comedians in cars getting coffee, crossed with the stimulating pleasures of a My Dinner with Andre caliber conversation. Cerebral, serviceably funny, unguarded, and chock full of bullshit. Okay, then, in a moment, we'll jump into today's conversation, which begins with some passing comments about Neera Tandon's recently failed nomination for the Biden administration's Office of Management and Budget Directorship, before moving into longer discussions of our personal biographies and political ideologies, and then concluding with some ruminations on questions that had been raised for me by Jack's most recent book, What Hath Trump Wrought?, how Republicans betrayed American ideals. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast from your preferred service. And if you'd like to support our work here, as well as receive regular updates on this podcast and more, please visit my personal Substack page at the stillest hour. That's S T I L L E S T H O U R, the stillest hour. Dot Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, welcome to The Bullshit Artists. We're recording this, our first episode, on March 3rd, 2021. I'm Rory Verado, here with Jack Crittenden. Hey, Jack, how's it going? Going well, Rory. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Good. Getting caffeinated. Um, so last week when we talked, you, you made an, a reference to your interest in uh, my position or thoughts on neera Tandon's nomination to or for the position of what director of the office of management and budget right and you know we're recording this now today it's it's almost a moot point because she just re- withdrew her nomination right last night right. but i yeah. figured we could talk about it for a minute because i think it will dovetail dovetail in with some of the other topics we'll be discussing so um yeah, my thoughts were, in terms of now that she has withdrawn her nomination, I thought it was incredible poetic justice to see this woman who is just vile in her online conduct, uh, especially towards Bernie Sanders and his supporters, <laughs> who had projected throughout the entire Democratic you know, 2020 primary, all this Bernie bro bullshit, um, and she gets taken down you know, for, her, for doing precisely that that which she had accused of others uh you know by mansion and uh, and a few uh, cent- uh centrist republicans so-called so that's that's sort of my position i, I i'm I, you know i have a lot of schadenfreude over here enjoying her sure. uh you know public humiliation but so what do you, what are you what do you have what are your thoughts if any
1: well there is an irony in that she's taken down by the republicans for doing the thing that that Trump has done for, or did for four years. Uh, but if you're a progressive Democrat, I don't think you're unhappy that the Republicans and Joe Manchin ganged up on her to, uh, to, have, her, to have her eventually withdraw her name. I mean, she, she is a, I was gonna call her a typical centrist Democrat. I don't know if that's fair, but she's tied in with corporations. She's tied in with donors. It's what she's done. She's attempted to cut social security in the past. I I just don't think she lines up with what we would, what you and I would like to see uh, in the Biden cabinet. Now, having said that, maybe she would be excellent as the the head of the office of management and budget. I don't know, but I'm not unhappy that she has uh, withdrawn her name. And I understand, I don't know much about uh, the person who was going to be second to her who I believe now will move up and uh, be nominated as the head. I don't know about her. Do you know about her?
0: I don't actually, I, I think I might've just seen a reference to her name and something about that she would be the first black woman to head this uh, department, but I don't know anything about her. She can't possibly be worse than Neera Tanden, maybe as bad as, but- Yeah, no,
1: uh, I, I think she's uh, very much on the progressive side but I might be wrong about that. I haven't really paid attention.
0: Well, that'd be nice to see. I mean, you know, Biden has, I think the only person that I've truly been, uh, you know, somewhat satisfied with is uh, what's her name? Deb Holland, right? The, yeah. Uh, yeah. Indigenous woman. Yeah. She's, she's quite good. And I was glad to see her. She I did think, get confirmed, right? I don't know that she's been
1: confirmed yet. I, I think she's out of committee.
0: Okay. And maybe she's now she goes
1: to the full Senate. I'm not sure about that either.
0: She seems uh, to be on track though hopefully
1: yeah and i think the secretary of education looks interesting
0: Mm.
1: he is uh, he comes from a background in public education which is a plus uh i think he (laughs) looks interesting uh i'm trying to think if anyone else stands out for being extraordinarily good and i don't know
0: yeah no no one comes to mind for me beyond deb holland but uh Yeah, the other thing I want to mention about Neera Tandon, the debacle with her, was the way, and this has been a theme, and I think it's going to continue to be a theme throughout the Biden administration, the way that they have used sort of liberal identity politics, sort of weaponized that to uh, shoehorn in establishment figures under the guise of sort of a phony progressivism, right? So Neera Tandon first... Uh, woman of South Asian descent uh, to head this office uh, you know, and that somehow qualifies her irregard, uh, irrespective of, uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, almost dropped an irregardless (laughs) irrespective of uh, her, you know, actual policies and personal history with center for American progress and Bernie Sanders and whatnot. Do you find that, do you think I'm on the mark with that as a, as a, sort of a tactic with the biden administration you i'm not sure i know what
1: you mean are you saying that the biden administration used her ethnic background as a way of trying to jam her into a position in a cabinet yes uh, in, to get a ter- centrist in there
0: i could yes. be. i don't know I, in I think terms of dealing with the left right uh, any any criticism from the left like oh you can't you can't criticize near tandem because she's a uh an indian woman and yeah. uh yeah you know
1: well as i said it, it helped having the republicans gang up on her <laughs> uh, because as, yes she's she's not as we said the, the candidate of choice for us
0: no okay well whatever she's out anyway so yeah like i said um, it's a it's a moot point but uh yeah. Anyway, let's talk about a little bit for the folks that don't know us, which is most everyone that will be listening to this, All right? About who we are and introduce uh, our backgrounds and whatnot. So, I drafted just two or three questions. I know that you don't like talking about yourself, so we'll keep it short and simple.
1: And so will I. I, <laughs> I,
0: know. I wanted to ask you, but you know this. This is this. I do have a, a, you know, sort of a plan here of where this is headed. And I think these questions will connect with the real topic that I wanna discuss with you. So I wanna ask you just where were you born? Where did you grow up? Uh, What, you know, what was your early life like? Anything relevant um, to your political development and then ultimately your education? If you can just talk a little about that.
1: Uh, I'll start talking, interrupt at any moment for clarification or to cut me off. So I was born in California, in Santa Barbara, California. My father at the time was finishing up his tour of duty in the military. This is post-World War II. Uh, And he was a medical doctor at a place called Camp Cook in Santa Barbara, which was a prisoner of war camp for American prisoners.
0: I don't think I knew that.
1: Actually, yeah, you probably didn't. So he was <laughs> he was there with uh, the worst kind of soldiers, sailors, and marines that you can imagine. These are all criminals, of various kinds. Uh, I was born there, lived a couple of years in Santa Barbara, and then when he was finished, he wanted to move back to uh, Pittsburgh, uh, which is a connection you and I have, of course. Right. Uh, to a little town outside about 14 miles outside of Pittsburgh called Sewickley. Now Sewickley if you look in the uh, I don't remember what it's called but there is a description of all the congressional districts in the country. And uh what prominent towns fall into what districts. And if you look at the description of Sewickley it's described as the ultra rich Sewickley. <laughs> it was a prime suburb for rich uh, corporate heads, lawyers, doctors, for people who lived in Pittsburgh, you know, Fox Chapel. Right. Uh, I don't know what else, Fox Chapel.
0: Fox and Chapel Su- still has that reputation, I think. I'm not sure about Sewickley, although although there's like a, a very prominent prep school there too, right? Yeah,
1: uh, where I went to school for many years right. and taught for a year. Uh, Yes, but so now it's been flooded with athletes. Uh, Mario Lemieux, the Mm. owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins, lives there, Ben Roethlisberger lives there. Anyway, um, Sewickley is, as you can imagine, a small, tightly woven Republican enclave surrounded by mill towns, which were represented by unions. People who lived there were, were by and large, workers. So it's uh it's a little bit anomalous. Uh, my family has a history of uh, producing Democrats. <laughs> my grandfather was the son of the governor of Kansas City. Uh, I sorry, the governor of Missouri and mayor of Kansas City, uh, who was a Democrat.
0: So, in other words, your great grandfather was the governor of Kansas. Is that or no,
1: my. My grandfather, my great-grandfather was governor of Missouri. His right. son, my grandfather, uh, married money. And uh, part of the deal was you moved to Sewickley, which he did. Um, so in the education of Henry Adams, Henry Adams says something like, uh, so th- I- I'd phrase it this way. You know, in life, you, you play the hand you're dealt you play the cards you're dealt. And as Henry Adams said, I was dealt the best hands of anyone. And that was true. I mean, I I grew up uh, surrounded by affluence. Um, No needs went unmet. And at the same time, uh, my grandmother and grandfather had a small farm, which went out of business. I'm not sure it was ever in business and then uh, reduced in size, but they were things uh, for kids to mess around with on a farm close by. So uh, that's the background. Um, I was happy to escape so quickly, and you probably, you won't be surprised to hear that I am in touch with virtually nobody (laughs) from my uh, high school class.
0: No, it's a, it's a bright line that divides the, the, People who stay and the people who leave, I think, from that region. At least yeah, for me. maybe.
1: Yeah. So they were just people I found that I had less and less in common with, and uh, so I went to school in Boston, and uh, it was it was a time on the cusp of dramatic change. So when I arrived, there were parietal hours. You you won't know what that means because no, you you <laughs> went to college in a different era. Parietal hours were hours where you were permitted to visit uh, female dormitories or females could come to your male dormitory. So all male dorms, all female dorms. Parietal hours are the hours where you were allowed to be with a female in your room. Um, that It was the era of frat parties and keg parties, which probably still goes on. <laughs> and then about the beginning of my sophomore year, things began to change. Drugs hit the campus. The uh, civil rights movement was already prominent on our campus because they were building some, the first co-ed dorm. And we marched down there, I'm a freshman, first semester freshman, and we marched down there because we wanna shut the site down because they're using non-union workers and they're using no workers of color. So we marched down there and this was my first taste of Boston police They brought them in on school buses. And when they got off, they surrounded the site. And we were pushing close to them. And I noticed, again, I'm I'm an 18-year-old kid. This is new to me. You know, I come out of a background of of, uh, liberal centrists and right-leaning people who are law and order types
0: so no negative interaction with police prior to this. never
1: well one time when i was accused of of uh throwing eggs at cars (laughs) uh but it wasn't me surprisingly anyway the police the police are pouring off pouring off this bus and they're in their riot gear and i noticed they take their badges off oh shit and put them in their pockets so two things occurred to me immediately because i wasn't stupid i was i was inexperienced but not stupid i said number one they don't want to be identified and number two they don't want to be identified because of what they're about to do right so uh discretion being the better part of valor i, I left I said, fuck <laughs> this i'm not i'm not standing here to get my head stowed in
0: yeah there's nothing to be gained from that
1: no so i retreated anyway so <laughs> the civil rights movement is active the anti-war movement is active on campus the women's movement is beginning uh, marijuana and various forms of hallucinogens are taking the campus so it was a dramatic change in one year this is mid 60s this is late 60s late so 60s. this is this is 67 uh, 68 this was 68
0: so the real heart of it yeah
1: yeah and it was it was night and day rory it's it's hard to convey this to listeners and viewers it was <laughs> night and day a campus goes from what felt like the you know, sock hop 1950s to suddenly uh, the anti-war movement and the era of free love. It was great. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. So you want me to stop here and uh, have you jump well, in with your...
0: Yeah, let me... Yeah, I'm going to think about what you just said. I mean, so I guess just quick follow-up. Do you, do you attribute that sea change to your the actual presence of you and your classmates coming in bringing it with you uh, is that the most significant factor among others you know or yeah
1: yeah it's a it's a good question it was a, a little bit of of riding the wave of change that was happening regardless of what we did but also the desire by people in my class to to change the the tenor of the campus to change that particular campus right So I had, I'll give you an example. I pledged a fraternity. So again, a different, maybe a different era. This was what you did socially. Everybody was pledging fraternities. That's what happened. So I pledged a fraternity and there were 32 of us in the pledge class. By my senior year, there were five left. Because the intention among almost all of us was to try to use the fraternity as an organization for social change. So, for example, my sophomore year, uh, I brought the Black Panthers onto the campus, into our fraternity to give a public talk. Nice. Wild. Absolutely (laughs) wild. And it was great. But it was not the sort of thing that went over very well. I can't remember how I convinced the fraternity to let them use the facility to host the Black Panthers.
0: They're probably lying in some way.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm sure I lied yeah i'm sure i don't know i gave some you know academic reasoning for doing this i can't remember but it was it they were they were completely um well behaved there was no uh, acting out on either part
0: so they you know. just spoke about their sort of ideology and platform yeah. yeah what
1: they were for what they were against why they did what they did um how they could liberate white people <laughs> right. uh, you know we had one at the time I'm trying to remember we had one maybe two black fraternity brothers uh and maybe one hispanic yes we did yes in, in fact the president of our fraternity my junior year was bill richardson the who, governor of new mexico the governor of new future, mexico yeah. the secretary of energy uh he was secretary of something else. oh UN ambassador i believe
0: mm.
1: yeah uh <laughs> Anyway, so PNC, he was the one but,
0: Hispanic, is what you're saying.
1: I believe he was the one Hispanic. The guy could throw a baseball.
0: I believe it. Different yeah. era.
1: Yeah. So, uh, we tried to make it an organization for social change, and that didn't go over well. So we, you know, eventually gave up, petered out. It was a cheap place to live, so I was happy to live there for a while, and uh, then it just got to be too much. You know, we just lost interest in other things going on and faded out.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, then let me offer my flip side of this. Uh, in contrast with you and your ivory tower, the, the Cathedral of Learning in Swickley. you know, I, I crawled out of a coal mine in Western Pennsylvania, right? So I grew up in uh, uh, Indiana County, which is an area about 40 miles outside of Pittsburgh, and no illustrious uh, figures in my uh, ancestry that I know of, but, uh, you know, and nevertheless it shaped my perspective in a variety of ways. And I think it will be intriguing as this conversation progresses to see how you and I sort of meet in the middle or whatever that may be, um, coming from such different backgrounds and yet similar backgrounds in some ways. But sometimes I'll describe, you know, I've, I've told people about this when I was living in New York, you know, um, about where I came from, because many people in New York City do not have much experience with rural America, or if they do, it's just outright disdainful—you know, uh, the, the Hillary Clinton deplorable type uh, uh, attitude. But there is some truth to the idea that, like, essentially, I grew up in an 18-year-long open-air Trump rally. Um, <laughs> you know, it was it was rough, and and it but it, and it was the the sort of water in which so many people swam. And I attribute that in many ways to not just the generational poverty in Appalachia, but also the sort of deliberate miseducation of the population through public schools and also, of course, propaganda outlets. You know, I was reading sort of bookmark this for us to come back to later. I was reading your What Hath Trump Wrought recently. Haven't finished it yet, but you have this section on propaganda which I really liked and want to come back to if we if we remember. But anyway, that's the milieu, right, in which I grew up in. And so for me, uh, maybe- you know,
1: just, just to interrupt you for a second. Yeah, yeah. It turns out then that we grew up in the same kind of pond. Uh, your, your Trump supporters were people uh, who felt they had been left behind, left out, overlooked. My people were people who were- Playing the game as elitists, right? Of appealing to those people with the intention of doing nothing for them, or even is, outright harming them, or e- yes, even outright harming them. Good point. But playing on their sympathies for certain social issues. Uh, so it's yes. the it's the same. I called it a pond. Some people might call it a sewer, but it's the same kind of water that we were floating in. But right, but if. It-
0: <laughs> If shores, if we yeah, if we stretch the metaphor, then I'm you know I'm among the fish in the pond, and you and your crew are are the fishermen, right? Yeah, you know
1: you're using dynamite, (laughs) right?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, and uh, you know, and at the same time, and this is another thing, like the reality is that those folks are right to be upset and to feel uh, disenfranchised in some ways harmed in some ways because of deliberate projects by elites to immiserate them, whether it's NAFTA or environmental degradation through coal mining uh, and all kinds of things. So, uh, you know, I think there's the problem is that 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 uh, very real sentiment is manipulated in the ways you were just describing by wealthier, more connected people for nefarious ends. Yeah. And the logical sort of personal gains. Yeah. Trump. But uh, yeah, so nevertheless, in the same fashion, I think uh, I also wanted to escape uh, this region. You know, I never fit in there. Uh, This is a place where being smart or even just being interested in reading is, you know, uh, not allowed or frowned upon, mocked, etc. So so I bailed through uh, really sheer luck. And this is where my sort of narrative begins to connect uh, where, where we end up meeting, right? So I, I took a test one day to get out of class because I hated high school. And that test was the PSAT, which I knew nothing about really. I knew it was some kind of, uh, you know, pseudo SAT. And it, seriously, it was never explained to me or if it was, I slept through it, you know, whatever. And uh, took that test and then ended up Uh, you know, weeks or months later, receiving notification that I had uh, qualified for the first round of, you know, scholarship evaluation, progressed from the quarterfinals to semifinals to finals or whatever, and ended up getting the National Merit Scholarship. At this time, Crow, President Crow, had just come into ASU and was instituting this program of recruiting National Merit Scholars to boost ASU's academic Reputation in light of its party school reputation, right? So right. they pulled me out of the pond, and uh, and it's interesting. So, also, so they
1: they contacted you.
0: Yeah, you didn't make yeah, any they, overtures to them. None. I never I never applied to ASU ever. <laughs> they they just sent me a, a letter and said, "Hey, you're a national merit scholarship finalist. Uh, you can come here for free, and in fact, we'll give you a stipend if you come." And I said, fuck, yeah. <laughs> uh, now you're, you're, that.
1: Your sister lives in Arizona. Was she not there at the time? When no, you went-
0: I, I was the first one out. Uh, okay. So of my like sort of immediate family. And my sister's about five years older than me. So she was, I think, in Philadelphia at the time she was attending Temple. Um, although she didn't finish, she didn't graduate. But yeah, so I I took that offer. And I had a few different offers from like, central university of central florida or something like that somewhere in texas somewhere in the dakotas and i knew nothing about asu i saw it was warm and as far away as i could get from uh, rural western pennsylvania so i what, jumped on it
1: what were your politics like then or did you not have any i asked because you're yeah. you're accepted to all schools in all red states
0: <laughs> yeah that's true actually i think that i think that is true yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and it's, I'm going to answer it maybe at more length than you anticipated, but I think it's important. So like I, like I had said, I, uh, I grew up in a place where learning and education and intelligence were negative things. So from a young age, I turned inward and was reading books, just constantly reading books of all kinds from the library. My grandmother was a school teacher; She supplied me, kept me with a steady supply of books. Um, she actually taught at my elementary school, although I didn't, I wasn't in her classroom because she thought it would show favoritism. Uh, and she's probably right. Um, but, but yeah, so what was I saying? My politics evolved uh sort of organically, I was soaking up the environment that I was in, right? So I'm surrounded by Fox News, especially at home, to the extent that I had a home, right? My stepmother was an early Fox News devotee, mm. um, Rush Limbaugh, uh, Ditto Head, right? So I have distinct memories of waking up, you know, first thing in the morning to get ready to go to school and Rush Limbaugh's blaring on the fucking clock radio, you know, and it's like, what well, that's the absolute worst. I would rather get punched in the face <laughs> to wake up than to wake up to his, you know, diatribes. So you so, were,
1: you were not influenced by what you were hearing.
0: Well, that's where I'm getting. So I was, I was soaking this up, of course, without realizing, cause I'm a kid. Right. Yeah. And I'm only exposed to a certain range of opinions and things like this, but because I was already reading widely it didn't take much, mostly fiction when I was younger, it didn't take much for me to realize like, first of all, the thoughts being expressed by these outlets are um, simplistic or sort of duplicitous in some ways. And second, like there must be more. So kept seeking, but at the same time, I was influenced with sort of a soft conservatism. So I actually, I just remembered, there was a, a contest that I entered when I was probably 13 or 14. Uh, and this was right at a turning point for me where I wrote this. They solicited essays from people my age about, I think it was specifically about politics. And I wrote something that was sort of anti affirmative action. Okay. I don't remember the exact details because this was, you know, half a lifetime ago, but I wrote it from a position a naive belief in you know egalitarianism so it wasn't it wasn't i don't think it was coming from the same place that your stereotypical conservative would come from with it but nevertheless my position on the policy at that point was lining up with that right. Do you see what i mean right yeah yeah and so But it was also at this time that I began, that I came across, I was going to Barnes & Noble a lot for whatever reason to escape home life. And uh, because you could browse Barnes & Noble, nobody bothers you. It's like a library, had a better selection than my public library. Found Nietzsche, right? This is when I read Thus Spoke Zarathustra for the first time, like 13, 14. And interestingly, I found him because of a video game. I had played a video game that was titled Beyond Good and Evil. And I thought that's a pretty cool title. And then I read a review of it and the reviewer mentioned that it was an allusion to Nietzsche. And I was like, who the fuck's this guy? Sounds pretty cool. Went to Barnes and Noble. <laughs> they didn't have, <laughs> didn't have Beyond Good and Evil, but they had Zarathustra. It was smaller, cheaper, grabbed it, read it. This turned me completely against you know Christianity, of course. Um, I had already begun that journey previously, um, just by witnessing ev- the evangelical Christians in my life, not, um, you know, practicing what they preach. Yeah. So, you yeah. all of this was sort of the turning point for me at that age, at which point I began to, at, at which point it basically awakened my anti-authoritarian streak, right? And that's what sort of suffuses my politics today and moved me leftward, further and further leftward from there. So before long, Crow scoops me up, sends me to ASU on the stipend, studying American history, sorting through all the problems that I have and uh, inherited from difficult family life and, um, and being exposed uh, to you know leftist and radical positions through primary text especially uh, from American history. I had already read Zin in high school. had a had a couple of good history teachers in high school, and then began to run into Debs and other uh, historical figures uh, from American uh, past, and and ran with it. Uh, and then eventually, of course, as you know, studied under you, took a Nietzsche seminar with you, uh, and then. After eventually graduating, came back to ASU, got my master's in political theory, and now I'm at Columbia studying philosophy and education at Teachers College. So
1: did you switch from history to political science, or were you always a history major and graduated with a history degree?
0: Graduated with the history degree, American history concentration, political science minor, which was fulfilled, uh, yeah, through your Nietzsche seminar and a few others. And then, of course, I was at the Honors College, too, you know, not the right. but whatever.
1: The Nietzsche seminar was an undergraduate seminar or was it a graduate seminar?
0: I don't recall. I, I think it may have been mixed, but I don't remember if it was pegged at the oh, undergrad you know, level. It,
1: it might have been one of those classes that uh, Barrett, the Barrett Honors College offered its students. I can't remember what they were called, but you could take graduate level classes with the professor's approval in full recognition that you were still an undergraduate, I think it was something like that. So that was the mixed part. I think you were referring to a mix of yes. undergraduates and graduate students. Okay.
0: Yeah. They definitely had that. And I definitely took some of those courses and and likely this was one of them. Yeah. Okay. So that was good. And uh, yeah. Uh, what What did I want to ask you before we, well, I, I wanted—I w- I did want to ask you about radicalizing events, but you already kind of covered that. Or like, what was a political awakening for you? Unless there's something you want to add. I mean, you talked about the Black Panthers. Yeah, but that—that that was the
1: result of, I guess, my radicalization. Uh, you know, I don't recall growing up in Sewickley that any of us paid real attention to politics we were interested in getting drunk and
0: <laughs> so are we in field parties you know? yeah and
1: getting <laughs> into shit um plus i was i was wrapped up in i was in student government and i was editor of the school paper and i was playing sports so you you know I'm, i was distracted and uh, I, I said that we came from a line of Democrats, which is true. But so quickly, as with uh, other. Conventional, traditional, even reactionary communities has an effect. We didn't listen to Rush Limbaugh. We I predate him by a considerable right. amount. It predate his show, not him. Uh, but it, it works on you, right? So my father and mother were, were pretty much staunch Republicans. They were Nixon Republicans. Oh, wow. Uh, and I didn't really pay much attention to politics, but out of self-interest and out of a sense of moral obligation, I was definitely anti-war, which, which then opens it up to all sorts of things, right? Then you, because the movements are are, are fresh and they're lively and they're, different so you know the women's movement the anti-war movement the civil rights movement all of that's going on all it's just exploding mm. um and then you add in the into the mix into that alembic the idea of free love hallucinogens uh it yeah it was it was quite a time so i don't all.
0: know
1: <laughs> yeah but it's because it was it was uh, almost li- literally night and day I don't remember making choices about it. And and this is a criticism mm. of me. I'm floating along. Right. right? I, I'm sort of just floating along with what's happening. So I'm surrounded by people who are also becoming interested in these things. Now, some of them are still fraternity guys and they're, they're jocks and they're involved in other things. But I was just kind of moving along with, with the flow. Uh, and being. fortunately,
0: the flow was going in a good Place. yeah good direction i was lucky yeah, yeah i
1: was lucky he gets swept up in this and again i i don't want to discount nor do i want to emphasize the importance of self-interest for those of us who were draft eligible
0: sure yeah this
1: was the 68 was the year of the draft lottery but my first year in college 67 you know you're you're you you lose your your four a four what the hell was it called four f the college deferment you lose your deferment you're you're fucked you're going to vietnam right and so when the lottery came along that was actually very freeing (laughs) my room my roommates next door had piled their books in uh, outside in the backyard because if their draft numbers were high they were just going to set fire to them
0: now, Why? What would that achieve?
1: They're Just... going they're going to Vietnam.
0: Oh, okay. If gotcha. they have
1: their number was 14, they're they're going to Vietnam. So what's the point of this? Well, I suppose the point is to educate yourself, but apparently you're willing to put that off. Uh, and either start thinking about divinity school or heading to Canada or
0: right.
1: yeah, doing some more you know
0: or becoming imprisoned, right? Like Ali.
1: Imprisoned in, in or or joining up more, yeah. you know. Uh, anyway. Where do we get on this? So the radicalism, uh, radicalization.
0: So you would say it was the anti-war, the Vietnam War. Is that, or is it something else? It didn't seem to be
1: any single thing.
0: Gotcha. It just
1: seemed to be the just so the matrix that we were in, uh, and the people I was surrounding myself with, my friends, women I was involved with. They were we were just. I don't want to say swept up because that makes us kind of mindless. Right. Uh, but it was so overwhelming. The, the righteousness of the movements seemed so overwhelming to me that I was didn't. Was it attractive? It, it was attractive because there didn't seem to be anything going on on the opposite side. Right. What was the appeal there? We have a war in Southeast Asia. We, we have a clearly misogynistic culture right. that is denying women admission to, to schools and, and professional programs. Uh, we, we have you know, clear civil rights issues. You know, 60, so 64 and 65, there's some civil rights laws passed, but come on, you know, they're draining swimming pools in the South so that nobody can use them. Right? When, they, when they said you have to integrate, the white people said, well, the hell with that. We just, we won't swim either. We'll go to private clubs. And too bad for everybody else I mean, it was just you know it was, it was Jim Crow it was all of that it just didn't seem to me that there was anything on offer on the right now yeah. bear in mind I was 18 19 year old kid I probably wasn't looking I wasn't and I wasn't looking for things but I remember staying up all night uh, in the election in 68 you know it was just a terrible year it was just an awful year and th- as an aside uh, I was working in the summers in a, in a, a small steel mill in Pittsburgh called the right. boiler boiler tube of America.
0: Uh, I think you told me about this before the sort of, this is because you used it in your discussion of Marx and Adam Smith, I think. Oh, Hey, this is my cat. So did I in class <laughs> I or
1: some, some other place,
0: just the, the making of the widgets or whatever. Yeah. In class, I oh, think in the that stultification. Was a different job. That was okay. A, that was a different yeah.
1: job. Yeah. Now this one was, uh, Uh, I was working with union guys. I wasn't, and I was in the union. I became a union member. Little Steel, number seven. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Um, But I'm working with guys who are very much like the people you grew up with. You know, they they don't talk politics because there's nothing there. They're talking about uh, diving off the bridges in Pittsburgh, which (laughs) they did for fun, right? They'd get drunk and they'd go to the top and they'd dive off these bridges. And they taught me how to do it. I never did it, but they taught me how to do it. For those of you who don't know, listeners and viewers, (laughs) Pittsburgh is called the City of Bridges because it actually has more bridges than the city of Venice in Italy. So uh, I was working in the mill and Martin Luther King is already dead. And Bobby Kennedy, I remember getting, going to work and hearing Bobby Kennedy was dead and I was just shattered. I mean, I was just shattered by this.
0: Yeah, that's awful. I really (sighs) like Bobby Kennedy.
1: So now we've got, you know, now, now we have got Joe Biden instead of Bernie Sanders. Right now, now we've got instead of a guy who's a champion of the poor and a champion of the of minorities, we've got a guy who's a, a centrist. And Hubert Humphrey still wanted him to win, so you know, stay up all night to see if he can do it, but he didn't. Right. But anyway, so it's these small—it's the small drip of of uh, constant realization. You know, looking at what you're studying what you're reading people you're meeting people in class um I, I was a political science major so i took some some classes in the labor movement um courses in violence and nonviolence. I was interested in all that yeah so there was no one single moment i guess like you it uh well i guess you you were you were actually reacting to something right
0: i think so i think yeah yeah, the, I mean, I, I, under, I, I definitely agree with and understand what you're saying about sort of just the ether, right? Like yeah. all the things that are going on, especially as a young person coming up and just sort of poking your head out and taking a look around. Um, but there was sort of a singular event, I think for me, which was the September 11th attacks, right? Sure. So I was 13, I think, when that happened. I was in eighth grade. I still remember to this day, very distinctly sitting in class, Another teacher comes into the classroom and you could tell as soon as he opened the door that there was a huge problem. And he called the teacher over. They stepped outside, hushed tones, came back in, and we turned the TV on, right? And all the cable news coverage of of what had happened. And and then, of course, that galvanized and changed the political atmosphere overnight, basically. And, And that was right at the same time that all the other things in my personal life were happening that I just described to you earlier and so it was it became very apparent to me that like you know this is this is all fraudulent <laughs> like whatever is happening here not that I fully understood it but the answer to what has happened is not to go blow people in a different country up you know um so that was, yeah, that's sort of, that was the beginning for me really of, of, of a more mature or at least a more rooted in ongoing events political perspective.
1: I'm impressed with your 13 your year old self. <laughs> well, this is, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Well, because it, it, it strikes me as unusual. There wasn't anything that I can remember that was really presented as a counterweight to the standard narrative of what was going on. We were attacked by terrorists, jihadists, radical Islamists, and uh, we had to make sure they didn't do it again.
0: Yes, yes. And I think, I mean, it's hard to reach back in hindsight and enter into the exact state of mind, right? That I was in at 13 or 14, but what I know for sure is that, and this is sort of the irony or, or however you want to think about it, cosmic irony of having been exposed to the, the worst, this high concentration of conservative propaganda, right, from Fox News, Russia, growing, growing up yeah. with that, yeah. And so I was, that was just, I was inundated with that. And it wasn't so much that I had like a robust counter narrative. It's just that I knew that they were full of shit they were obviously lying because it was transparent to me. Tone of voice, things like this, right? You'd, heard it, you'd heard it before. Substance. You'd heard it
1: before. You'd heard it before from Rush Limbaugh, or, yes,
0: uh, Hannity, who whoever was on Fox News, right? There was a time when Hannity was on Fox News with a pseudo liberal named Combs. You may remember this. Oh I mean, right, it was yeah, I do. And Combs, yeah. And he, you know, eventually they squeezed him out because he had more, you know, more than two brain cells to rub together or whatever, triple digit IQ. So, um, but yeah, so, so it was more so that, that, that the, the dominant narrative, especially amongst conservatives was just transparently false to me. And, and, and I started putting the pieces together from there. And of course, at the same time, I was entering into ninth grade and I had an excellent, Uh, ninth grade history teacher who was left leaning or at least anti-establishment leaning. And, you know, one of the things that we focused on that year was just how every war America starts, you know, usually under false, you know, uh, pretenses. And uh, we we are the aggressors, whether it's the Mexican-American War, you go on and on and on. Um, So this seemed to be of a piece with that, you know.
1: Yeah. But you didn't go so far as to become a truther. Or did you? <laughs>
0: no. Although I have, well, this you know, this won't do anything for people who are listening to this podcast. But right here, I have a, a small book about uh, titled "9/11: The Simple Facts: Why the Official Story Can't Possibly Be True." But it's not this. Similarly. Uh, does not present a counter-narrative or a grand conspiracy theory. Rather, it delves into sort of structural engineering and things like this about the collapse of, what is it, Tower 6 and other things to show that there are massive holes in the 9-11 Commission and others, um, you know, sort of reports, official reports on what happened. That's an aside. I'm not a truther, but I I am indeed skeptical of the official government narrative. Uh, And I mean, it it doesn't, I don't think it's far-fetched for us to say, well, the United States and especially the Republican Party has deep and sordid ties with Saudi Arabian, you know, officials and oligarchs uh, going back at least to the 80s when we armed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the uh, Russians, you know, so yeah, there's much more, I think, to the events of 9-11 then then is, you know, accepted in the mainstream.
1: Well, and we can't let Democrats off the hook for the same thing. Yes. As we're seeing today with the murder of Kosoji. Right. (laughs) Kosoji. I can't say uh, it either. (laughs) And Biden's um, position on letting the crown prince sort of
0: skate. Yeah, they're just uh, not gonna do anything pretty much, huh?
1: Yeah, I, presumably because it jeopardizes whatever arrangements we have with Saudi Arabia to thwart Iran. Uh, I,
0: I don't know. Well, and I think oil. It all comes down to the oil at the end of the day. You know, the Saudis trade oil using the US dollar, and that's a huge part of how the empire maintains itself. Sure. I think. <laughs> sure. Whether you, but... uh Yeah, so now we're about six layers deep, and I forget where I was going. You asked me a question.
1: I think I asked you about uh, your political attitudes, and then we started talking about moments of radicalization.
0: Right. Uh, I don't know where we are now. And I was talking about 9-11 and sort of an inchoate, uh, anti-authoritarian, anti-establishmentarian streak that was emerging. Um, But, yeah, that ultimately, I guess, to just put a pin on the biographical stuff that we were talking about earlier, uh, can you talk for just a minute about your more advanced studies for your master's and doctorate? So I had mentioned I, I studied political theory under you and others, including Terence Ball at ASU, and, uh, and now I'm studying philosophy and education at Columbia. Uh, so what were what your uh, degrees and concentrations in what has your work become from that? Uh,
1: so there's a little bit of a backstory here. My father I mentioned was a physician, but it took him a number of years to get to medical school. Uh, he started, he went to Columbia, in oh, fact, okay. college of physicians and surgeons. And he told me that his first day, which I, I think this is exaggerated for the sake of the story his first day they wheeled out a cadaver and he and his partner uh you know were were supposed to cut in and find something that the professor had told them to look for and he said that was it i left i couldn't do it and didn't go there
0: what i can't blame him there if that were true (laughs) no
1: uh and did not go back for a number of years which i i can't recount now but he did a number of different things he worked on wall street for a while he went to move to louisville kentucky and worked in a sugar bottling plant Mm. uh did did a bunch of stuff and then when world war ii came along he went back to medical school got his degree and then was was a medical doctor but he told me once this is the point of the story he said don't ever use me as a model for how you conduct your life and it was exactly what i did I used him as a model. So I floated around, as you know, I taught high school English literature and composition uh, with really no preparation in the subject. Right, uh, so and, we share that. <laughs> yeah, right, That's right, we'll get to yours. <laughs> yeah, I did that for a couple of years. Um, and then went to, went to Harvard to study with a, a developmental psychologist named Dennis Krebs. And uh, the day I arrived, I discover that Krebs has left. He's gone to, I think he went to the University of Toronto or somewhere. And I said, well, uh, now what do I do? And so I sort of wandered around, wasn't really sure. I took a course in the history of developmental psychology, which was just deadly boring and ended up over in the school of education where it was for me, the golden age. Uh, For those of you who don't know anything about developmental psychology, um, I can just tell you that maybe the two most prominent people in the field were at the Harvard School of Education, Lawrence Kohlberg, who who helped pioneer the field called moral development, and Carol Gilligan, who was a student of his, and then uh, playing off of his work sort of inverted it uh, using his model, but showing its flaws because it was uh, male-centric.
0: Right. So she and was
1: there, Kohlberg was there, a guy named Robert Keegan, uh, who was, I think, a clinical psychologist, but also a developmentalist was there.
0: I think he's still there.
1: I think he is still there. Yeah. yeah. Bob Keegan is a terrific guy. And then it just turned out that developmental psychology was having a, an impact on other fields so in the divinity school there was a man named james fowler who wrote a book called uh, stages Step, of faith stages of faith yeah about devel- the development of of faith using a, a developmental psychological model two guys at the, the business school uh bill torbert and uh chris argyris somebody at the kennedy school of government i can't remember but it was it was uh, it was bubbling right it was uh, it was on simmer and then it began to boil and it was it was uh, just the perfect place for me to be so I studied with Kohlberg and I studied with Gilligan and I studied with Keegan and I studied with the guy not James Fowler but a guy named Harvey Cox at the Divinity School uh, and it was just great and uh, then <laughs> I was supposed to go to a graduate Program for my PhD in psychology and study with a man named Michael Murphy, who was the founder of Eslin Institute. Right. Some of you may know this is sort of a new agey um, place out in Big Sur. It was actually Michael Murphy's fa- family's property. He was pretty well off. And uh, he started this place where they had uh, workshops on humanistic psychology. You know, getting to know yourself self-discovery self-realization all that stuff the, the, this was also the time of the uh, influx of people from the east from the buddhist and hindu traditions coming to the united states so i was kind of swept up in that a little bit i'd been a long time meditator at this point uh, but anyway moved to san francisco to study with michael murphy and i remember arriving in san francisco in my vw bus <laughs> of course <laughs> of course what else and uh i went to murphy's apartment in downtown san francisco where he was sitting for a portrait and i went in i remember going up to the second floor i went in and he's sitting for this portrait and the portrait painter's painting and, and i said uh you know i've come from boston we're going to work together in this program he went oh yeah right about that program uh i'm no longer affiliated with that I said, very okay. polite so, of him
0: to inform you yes yes <laughs> well, <laughs> well in, in advance right. of your arrival
1: so it's very much like dennis krebs at harvard
0: right.
1: uh, I, I arrive on campus and the guy i'm working with is no longer there so i arrive in san francisco and the guy i'm working with is no longer involved <laughs> so i got in the my vw bus um tried to figure out what i wanted to do drove down the coast arrived in santa barbara my hometown thought, wow, this is really nice, rented this little place and uh, hung out for six months. And uh, meanwhile, I applied to the Harvard Divinity School because I wanted. they had a degree called the Masters of Theological Studies, which was just a take whatever you want kind of degree. Rory, Rory will know that this is the kind of person I am. Right. D- don't try to pin me down to requirements obligations just let me sort of roam around
0: so part of what appeals to me about my program too one of the graduate students in my program once said described it as the island of misfit toys uh i thought that was pretty apt
1: i don't know about the island of misfit toys but i should know this is assuming it would be
0: a place to play (laughs) This is the old rudolph movie you've never seen that the old rudolph movie it's like not not quite old rudolph i know is rudolph valentino okay fuck it (laughs) Never
1: mind. <laughs> Continue your story. <laughs> okay. Well, the story. The story. I'll be brief. So, uh, my plan was pack up, move back to Harvard, which I did, and then I got waylaid um, by working on a journal with a friend of mine named Ken Wilber, who is uh, considered to be the New Age philosopher. Um, a guy who's written a number of books, some of them really quite good. Uh, he, he, he's veered around a bit later in his career. But anyway, mm. uh, I worked with him on starting a journal, a magazine. So I had a choice. Do I go to Harvard or do I do this thing in publishing? And I did the thing in publishing, which lasted a while. Got married. Uh, a couple of years later, my wife got pregnant we i said shit i need a real job i cannot have a family and live on what i'm living on i got to have a job went to work for a place that needed a director of publications which was a great deal of fun and then one day i was in the harvard bookstore which is a not to be confused with the harvard university uh the harvard coop which the is the official bookstore for Harvard University. This is a different place called the Harvard Bookstore. I came Naturally. across this book in political theory called uh, "Justice, Justice and the Limit." No, hang on. Liberalism and the Limits of Justice mm-hmm. by a guy named Michael Sandel, who ended up teaching at Harvard and still does. Right, He's very just
0: popular. Um, incredibly uh, MOOC. popular. Right.
1: Yeah, he teaches one of the most, if not the most popular course at Harvard called uh, Justice. Right. Which you can see uh at least some classes of it on on YouTube, and maybe maybe through Harvard as well. I don't know. Anyway, he wrote this book, and I read the book, and I said, "Well, this is just wrong." <laughs> and I said, "It's the, both sides of the argument." He he was pioneering an org. I don't want to call it a, a group or an organization. It is um without form it consisted of a few people who were labeled they didn't call themselves but they were labeled the communitarians and the communitarians were pushing back against liberalism in particular liberal individualism and i read the book and given my developmental psychological background i said well both of these sides are wrong both sides have gotten it wrong and i think i have a better uh, response So I went to my wife and I said, I really want to work, write this book. And I think I should quit my job and just take a year and write it. And she said, that's a really bad idea. (laughs) Because what if you can't get it published? And if you get it published, what if it doesn't sell anything? Then where are we? Right. So I would have made the family such as it was worse off by doing this. So she were already
0: in a bad position looking for a stable job and you're thinking I'll I'll become more unstable.
1: Yeah, become that's right. I had the stable job.
0: Oh, right, Uh, right, right. Some things
1: developed there that were unsettling for me, which meant I wasn't going to stay anyway at this job. But she said to me, why don't you get a degree? I said, well, yeah, that's a good idea. But the problem is that I, at the time, was 34 years old. And I said, "Uh, I can't put up with a lot of this shit. (laughs) I don't want to study a foreign language to pass some exam. I don't want to sit for exams. I don't want to write papers in a seminar about which I have no interest. Right. You just want to write the book. I just want to write the book. And she said, well, can't you find a place and just let you write the book? (laughs) And I said, I don't know. Uh, Now, bear in mind that I had been in a number of programs in and around the Boston area, none of which took. So I went to Harvard Divinity School. That didn't last. I applied to a program at BU, Boston University, called One of a Kind Doctoral Program, Mm. which would be perfect for you and for me. That didn't work out. I got into the political science program at MIT. Oh, interesting. I was going to work with a guy named Josh Cohen, Joshua Cohen, who's a theorist. You may
0: know something about Rory. He moved to Stanford. I know. Oh yeah. I know the name. Yeah. Yeah. He writes a little on cosmopolitanism, I think.
1: Yeah. He's done work on democracy uh, with, which I almost completely disagree. Yeah. Is he a little conservative?
0: I don't know too much.
1: He isn't so much conservative. He's got this view that we should be following Habermas's notion of the uh, ideal speech situation oh, so that the, yeah. the, you, you structure the best argument and the best argument wins
0: the forceless force of the better argument exactly and, yeah. and which is, i like but uh
1: sure but it's impractical i mean you can't operate politically <laughs> or democratically with anything like that no no so uh so anyway i went to mit to study with him he was on sabbatical so they said well let's get all of your uh, your quantitative courses out of the way okay that's great i'm just leaving i left so anyway i've been through all these programs they weren't working so i knew i'd looked around at something that would would be palatable now i found two programs both of them in england where you are admitted as a research student and that's what i did i i I called this famous american historian gordon wood (laughs) right uh I sent him a letter and said, I want to talk to you about this. He'd just come back from Oxford. I said, I want to talk to you about this. I've been accepted at Oxford and Cambridge and I don't know where to go. So I called him up. He was incredibly kind. And he said, uh, do you have kids? And we had one child and one on the way. And he, I said, yeah. He said, well, you can't go to Cambridge because there's nothing there. <laughs> so go to Oxford. Went, All right. And uh, went, says so. <laughs> yeah, I went to Oxford entered as a research student and, um, wrote the book. They, did, yeah. they pretty much said, okay, you know, you come in with an idea. That's what a research student does. You're admitted on the basis of, of what you want to do, laid out what I wanted to do. They said, write the book. Took me three years, got a doctorate, <laughs> wrote the book, which was my first book, the basis of my first book, Beyond Individualism.
0: Right which for uh, people listening or watching this, that's where the podcast logo is taken from the cover of Jack's first book Beyond individualism. I've gotten faded Larry.
1: again fading out the book is faded so that's appropriate for me to fade there.
0: Well, uh, I know that's your you know self-deprecating assessment, but the book was pretty influential for me um, and you know it really you know you, as you described I, the I love the motivation that you had for it, which was, this fucking guy is wrong, Sandel, and yeah. not only is he wrong in his own, you know, articulation of whatever he's thinking, but he is either wrong about or misunderstands, or the arguments themselves are are unfounded or or poorly poorly founded. The counter arguments, right, the things that he's addressing. So it's like the whole the whole discourse is flawed.
1: Yeah, right. That's right. He he his main punching bag was was John Rawls, who had written this. Uh, iconic book, A Theory of Justice, which I think was published in 1971 and had major influence on uh, political theory. In fact, some people say that it was Rawls's book that saved political theory, dragged it away from political behavioralism, which completely controlled political science at the time. Right. Which Uh, this
0: was after. When did Berlin, didn't Isaiah Berlin write that essay? Like, does political theory exist (laughs) in like the 60s or something? do you know what i'm talking about yeah
1: and i don't remember the article
0: oh okay well ball ball assigned it to me one time and he basically outlined what you just said like political theory has been subsumed or captured or whatever it was completely yeah Yeah. it was all about how do we
1: explain political behavior that's what it was all about and rawls pretty much uh, introduced normative political theory saved political theory uh and then generated uh as rory knows an industry of books uh for and against Rawls, and even leading Rawls, the critics even led Rawls to reconsider his positions and created another book called Political Liberalism. But uh, Sandel used him as a marker for laying out the communitarian perspective. I do not think he was unfair to Rawls. Mm -hmm. I don't think he um, mischaracterized his, his position, and I don't think he created a straw man by any means. But I thought both of them were simply wrong, that liberalism cannot rest on a foundation of atomism, right. of this notion that human beings are separate billiard balls smashing around, smashing in each other on occasion. That just isn't going to hold up. Nor is the communitarian position that we are subject to uh, inextricably certain aims and values of our communities. I think both of those were just wrong, wrong and wrong headed. And I use developmental psychology as a lever to. Uh, wedge my different position in there, which I still think is not just credible,
0: but right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think the thrust of what you outline in that book is, is yeah, is correct. Certainly it's superior to either of the schools of thought that you're addressing and critiquing. So you you sort of integrate them and go beyond them, right? As Ken Wilber would say, transcend and, and include or whatever uh, yeah. these... Yeah these ideas. So I guess, without getting, you know, maybe in the future, we'll get more into the weeds about some of these arguments that you make and and other things that you've written about in your work. But this might be a, a good point, since you've mentioned sort of liberal individualism and communitarianism. These sort of labels and identities, political markers or ideologies do you subscribe to any of them? Do you? Would you label yourself as a communitarian, a liberal, communist, socialist? Locate your politics for us, and then I'll I'll do the same. Okay. Um, Maybe I should go. Well, no, you go first. No, you go first. <laughs> Shit, you're okay. the host. You're the All host.
1: Right. I'm the parasite <laughs> feeding off the host. <laughs>
0: That's fair. <laughs> you, uh, okay, so I'll I'll direct that question first to myself then, and I guess. Well, I mean, as I was saying, certainly I was influenced by your work in this area, and my general trajectory from youth was, you know, undifferentiated, uh, centrist, somewhat conservative into liberalism, mainstream liberalism, and once the anti-authoritarian streak really took off, sort of, you know, transitioning into into full-on leftism, but again, you know, it took me a while to learn about these topics all the way through my master's studying with you and others, you know, like, what really does it mean to be, say, an anarchist, communist, socialist? How do we define and distinguish between these ideologies? So for me now, today, uh, where I land, if I'm, like, talking about myself to people in the know, I would say, I'm an anarcho communist or a libertarian socialist, right? Like Chomsky, basically, or Bookchin, uh, more in the Bookchin strain because of the ecological perspective. But I, in more publicly, I will simply say anarchist. And I have chosen to do that for a variety of reasons, one of which is because I think the most sort of salient and important thing to communicate to people is a disdain for and opposition to authority and hierarchy. And I think anarchy and anarchism capture that in a sort of transgressive way that does not have quite as much baggage as, say, communism as a as an ideological label. And and the part of the the root of that for me comes, I take from Tocqueville, where he has this line towards the end of democracy in in America, um, probably that chapter, that great chapter about what kind of despotism do we have to fear, um,
1: right.
0: where he says, the nature of, of the one I am to obey signifies less to me than the fact of extorted obedience. And that, that just really uh, captures my position on not just politics, but almost anything, which is no one has the right to obey or command or demand obedience from others uh including especially in a rigid hierarchical fashion and and identifying those points of hierarchy and working to dis- dismantle and democratize them i think is like a very practical work that can be done by everyday ordinary people in their workplaces in their social lives etc cetera, et cetera. right so that's that's sort of where i land um i think at this at this point
1: okay uh my my starting point is where you landed okay so you ended by saying uh you were talking about the democratization of institutions and hierarchies if not the destruction of hierarchies now i think if in further in sorry in future conversations you and i are going to talk about authority and hierarchy because i i don't think you actually reject those i think you reject them in certain contexts yes but I not think full I think authority
0: there can be justified authority and sure. hierarchy but it has to be democratically chosen
1: yeah but that that is where i'm headed okay but but and just one small editorial point hierarchy is unavoidable yes the question then becomes what's the nature of the hierarchy and again a point back to you and talk about the democratization of hierarchies which can be done so as i said my starting point is where you landed so i would describe myself would you, first before i get into the description did you take political ideologies with me is that a course you took with me
0: uh i taught it with you i ta'd i ta'd that with you i don't think i took it with you i think i took it as an undergrad with ball and then yeah i think that's. Okay.
1: Well, that's a course that uh, we taught at ASU to the masses. It was before Rory arrived at ASU. It was uh, labeled as Political Science POS 101. The reason that's significant is that entering students thought that that was the first course they were supposed to take in political science. The next number was POS 101. One ten, which is American politics, which a lot of students think is sort of introduction to politics, but we fooled them into taking a theory class. Probably the only one
0: that they would take. Often, many of
1: them. With the only one, but it was a great class to teach because we're teaching all kinds of students, not just theory students, but all kinds of students from across the campus, and mostly students thinking about political science as a major. It's a course I taught for years. And recognize, and having taught it, that I not only don't fit in any of the labels, I resent all of the labels. Yeah. Because I think they, where I want to be is on the edges, uh, where the bleeding takes place. And I don't mean the actual bleeding, but the bleeding across boundaries. Sure. So I describe myself as an unreconstructed, unapologetic, small D Democrat.
0: I knew you were going to say that. Yeah.
1: And that's uh, if you if you look at any of the political ideologies courses that were taught, democracy is never presented as an ideology because it's considered to be a mechanism within ideologies, sometimes rejected, sometimes forcibly forcibly removed, sometimes uh, enamored of. But it's really thought of as a decision making process. I don't think of it in just that way. I, I agree with John Dewey, who said that democracy is a way of life. He described it as the associative way of life. And that I think is really significant because it combines these two elements, taking us back to the libertarian, uh, sorry, not the libertarian, taking us back <laughs> to the communitarian and liberal positions. There's too much emphasis on, in liberalism on the individual, there's too much emphasis in communitarianism on community. But both of them are essential to having any kind of balanced, even sensible political ideology. And I think that's where democracy enters into it because it, it is, as, as Dewey said, uh, an associative way of life. You cannot have democracy if you are not engaged with other people. To say that you are self-democratic doesn't make any sense. It's different from saying you are self-directed, which makes a lot of sense. But if you're self-directed, it's often the case that maybe you don't want input from other people. I think that's a mistake for a lot of reasons that I, I think eventually Rory and I will get into. Right. But it's an associative enterprise consisting of individuals. And so democracy for me combines these two, the individual and the community, and they are inextricably tied What are the limits of it? I don't know. I don't know (laughs) what the limits are. Um, But for me, it is, if you read almost anything I've written politically, you'll see that at some point, I come down on some kind of democratization, often a radical form of it, of democracy, because it just seems to me to be the best way for people to engage one another and live with one another.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. And I think, I think we really ho- hold uh, essentially the same views because for me, uh, I would say with Edward Abbey, with Edward Abbey that um, anarchism is democracy taken seriously. And I, and so for me, there, it's synonymous, anarchism would be synonymous with direct, de- direct deliberative democracy.
1: Yeah. Now, but see this raises a really interesting perspective because one of the books that is certainly in your lane is Robert Paul Wolf's In Defense of Anarchism.
0: Right, which I think you exposed me to and has influenced me on on these points. I think that's kind of good. <laughs> but he's also wrong.
1: <laughs> wow, how? So well, he, his his solution first of all his his assumption is that if you are going to be autonomous an autonomous person you cannot follow any law that you do not prescribe for yourself right there's a twofold problem with that perspective the first problem is that laws exist i'm, I'm borrowing this from uh i'm pretty sure it's Randall Kennedy who teaches law at Yale I think who simplified law in the following way logs law laws exist to prevent you from doing what you want to do and keep you from doing no sorry prevent you from doing what you want to do and make you do things you don't want to do that's the law right now if that's the case and you want to be autonomous it means that you're going to you are going to throw yourself in the face of virtually every law because there's no law that you prescribe for yourself, except you say, yeah, that's a law I approve of, that's a law I disagree with. And so you become a government unto yourself. First of all, I don't think that in any way can be democratic. (laughs) Uh, And I don't think autonomy requires it or actually makes sense following that.
0: Mm.
1: But anyway, where Wolf ends up is say, you take this radical view of autonomy, that you only follow laws you prescribe for yourself. And he says, you then attach to that, this radical form of democracy, which is that you vote on everything. You install through technology into people's homes, on their computers, on their phones, on their television sets, a mechanism where you simply push a button to vote yes or no. That is a form, that's his form of anarchism. Yeah. Where, where everybody has a vote on everything, on anything, uh the it it just strikes me as the worst kind of plebiscitary democracy imaginable that is that can be ruled by the mob and uh so i think that it comes back to what rory said before i began this soliloquy (laughs) and that is that his anarchism pushes him toward a form of deliberative direct deliberative democracy which as rory knows i've written a book about that so that that's uh actually i've written a few books about that
0: pretty much everything you write is about that I is about say. that yeah, yeah. It comes to maybe that. not your novel but who knows but you haven't started that yet i'm assuming <laughs> no not yet that has, I'm working, has my, <laughs> <laughs> working my way through what hath trump wrought first
1: <laughs> it has uh machiavelli in a prominent position but it doesn't have really uh, real politics i mean machiavelli's real politics right anyway so yes so rory i'm in complete agreement with you if anarchism pushes you toward some form of direct deliberate democracy
0: yes it does and i just briefly but but i just wanted to say that
1: that's messy right because anarchism has a has a history and has uh different philosophical branches to that 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 tree so uh i think it would be important for you going forward to begin parsing various forms of anarchism and yes. and be uh for you prominent on the ones that you think are uh worth exploring worth holding to worth modifying
0: i agree and i think i guess a couple of things i would say is first that although i am influenced by wolf and agree with some of what he says i don't agree with all of what he says including the plebiscitary aspect that you outlined i mean i think there could definitely be a place for stuff like that but to say that it's everyone on all decisions all the time is ludicrous um it's more so just a a spirit or a demeanor at a personal level for me, which would connect with what you were referencing with Dewey, this idea of a way of right. life, which then manifests in whole many different ways and institutionally, et cetera. But I guess, you know, the part of the part of it, too, is that it's I, I want to I'm deliberately provocative with the term and we have so few opportunities to, you know, sort of break through to people. To, to, to sort of, as Chomsky says, you know, to, to expand their perception of the political beyond the narrow spectrum of acceptable discourse that is constrained by Republicans on one side and Democrats on the other. Right. Yeah. And so for me, anarchism, just using that word is itself like propaganda of the deed, as anarchists would say, you know, that you are. Catch catching or capturing people's attention in a way that may just repel them, <laughs> you know. There's always right. that risk, but if you if you're if you do it skillfully, perhaps you can break through. You know, that's that's sort of my impulse on it because yeah. I think you know both of us disdain labels. Like I don't I don't like labels. I don't run around using labels, but just you know we have to use words and names to in speech to right. discuss ideas. You know.
1: Yeah. I I, I maybe resist them more than you uh for the very reason you cite which is that people many people will have no reaction to the term anarchism they don't know what it means they don't know what it's involving and that might be a good thing to try then to get them to sort of open up open you up say what do you mean what does that what does that entail on the other hand plenty of people are going to have a reaction to anarchism, and it could be negative because they think, "Oh, anarchism—that means chaos. right That means uh, no government, no state, nothing. It, just lawlessness. The old west. That's what it right. is. Who's got, who's the fastest draw?" And you know, in w- fact, w-
0: Trump designated New York City an anarchist jurisdiction <laughs> in the light of the BLM protests. <laughs> and yeah, and not in a good way. No, no. Uh, but to so, your point, you know, sort of misusing. Uh, yeah, the, the but
1: that—that's the issue for me. So I don't think this comes solely out of my having taught political ideologies and truly appreciating the boundaries and how permeable they are. I think it also comes just out of my nature that calling myself a small D Democrat is something that uh, very few people are gonna react to negatively. So I don't mean it as finding a label that will be uh, allow me to be cordial. It's founding a label that won't turn people off immediately. Right. That they say, uh, oh, you're a Democrat. What do you want to do with democracy? And my response is exactly what Rory's was. I want to democratize virtually all of life. Right. Uh, workplaces, institutions, associations, whatever, wherever you are, whatever you're involved in with other people. Uh, maybe even families to some extent, or or schools in particular, where Rory and I share a, a common bond. Yes. Uh, but it's a starting point. It's a starting point that I think is, uh, is non-threatening to people, whereas you call yourself <laughs> an anarchist, people are scared. Oh, he's going to be armed. He's a bomb thrower. You know, they think back to uh, Haymarket. Quiteaux. in chicago or yeah who knows what but 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 some kind of you know anarchist assassination and and the, violence. we're
0: giving people too much credit i think no one uh you know the what's the percentage of people who know the name of the vice president like less than 50 percent, right typically isn't uh yeah that's American. probably right that's yeah, probably
1: right we can name the three branches of government even one of our sen- sitting senators can't name the
0: three branches of government Right, uh, he's a fucking football coach what do you expect this guy yeah right tuberville um yeah so i think i i take your point and you know that's just a small difference in i don't even want to say temperament but maybe strategy or something you you want to be more or less threatening with your small d democrat yeah, yeah. and you know and like but but, I but, there, but but there's a strategy i think
1: that you just you just touched on strategically mm. that might be important for you mm. because of your involvement in uh, extinction rebellion sure. and and uh and maybe even the, the way you view politics it might be important for you to use that as an entree for some reason. anarchism
0: yeah 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 i was going to mention that i think you're right you know uh the the manifesto that sort of promulgated uh extinction rebellion was is explicitly anarchist uh you know although it's a kind of ironic it's written by a guy uh well i'm for some reason i'm blank roger hallam uh he's british and he titled it Common Sense for the 21st Century. So I find that- It's, just... it's anarchism colon <laughs> common sense for the 21st century? No, no, it's just common sense. Oh, okay. But he, he is, or at least in the substance of the manifesto and his personal ideology is anarchistic. Um, and so, certainly the tactics are influenced by anarchist movements and widely condemned as anarchist in, in a lot of the mainstream press and things like this. But the point I just wanted to mention, like the common sense for the 21st century, here's a British guy alluding to an American revolutionary text that, you know, was sort of liberal and and ushered in uh, the capitalist era in which we live. And yet, you know, he's repurposing it in this way. I just find that kind of interesting and compelling. But Uh, What did I want to say? Oh, I just wanted to mention, you know, I I do have an anecdote about anarchism that I think proves my point, which is that so, you you'll find this funny, perhaps my I have a custom license plate on my car, and it is a n r k i s m. Okay, anarchism, you can only have seven uh, numerals or letters. So, but it's not only is it custom, but it is a personalized, but it's also custom in the sense of having a special uh, image, which is uh, live the golden rule, which is an option for Arizona residents. So I deliberately chose that as my personal propaganda, right? Here's anarchism, live the golden rule. (laughs) That's it. And I had this experience a couple of weeks ago. I was coming out of my apartment to get, go get in my car. And there's these three, three or four people standing behind my car looking at it. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're older and they were like, you know, probably roughly your age, maybe a little younger. And, um, and I go out, I'm bracing myself, but they were like perfectly nice, very nice. And they were very, Um, you know sort of steadfast Christians and they were they were excited that I was coming out and they were like oh do you own this car you know we were really hoping this would be you coming out right now we want to ask you about your license plate (laughs) and I I ended up having this probably hour-long conversation in the parking lot with them about what you know started off what did I mean by this why do I have anarchism with live the golden rule, which of course I then immediately went on to talk about Jesus because that's, you know, the common thread here between me and them. And I'm explaining, you know, I view Jesus as an anarchist and, and on and on from there. And it, it was effective. I have to say, I don't think I, you know, convinced them or persuaded them of much, but I think in a, in a sort of Socratic sense, I, first of all, exposed them to something that they likely did have a negative assessment of previously, and I managed to give them a positive one, and also planted some seeds that may not necessarily have undermined their beliefs, but challenged or changed down the road some of their ideas. In fact, one of the people uh, was was an ordained minister who had gone to seminary, and so I start talking about Chris Hedge's and Reinhold Niebuhr, and, you know, and, and she was like very, she took me seriously, you know. So that's, that's just my little story to tell you that I have seen some success, even with people that you might expect to have the least amount of success using this label. Well, you did have the connection. What? To Jesus.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Right. Yes, but I could, I could use that. I think they don't, you don't necessarily have to be a, a minister to, you know, Christianity is pretty widespread, even for people that are non-practicing in this country.
1: Right. But, but my point was that you're pushing them on their Christianity. Yeah. Which is a good thing. I mean, as you said, Jesus was an anarchist. Right. If he's not an anarchist, how would you describe him? Right. Well uh what did he do what did he preach how did he act so no i think that's very good um and they made the connection for them the 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 lure if i'm reading this correctly was the golden rule
0: yes i think it was the juxtaposition and
1: then and then that took them to
0: anarchist Or anarchism. Right. right? I'm not sure which came first. You know, that's a little bit of a chicken and egg. I don't I'm not sure which caught their eye first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, something did. And that was a a good conversation. I happen to think the golden rule is bullshit, but (laughs) uh, we'll we're bullshit artists. So I guess we'll get on to that one at
0: some point. Yeah, you don't really. I mean, yeah. Okay, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't really. I've re- yeah, I've read your work. You don't really think it's bullshit, but you think it's bullshit. Like, it's. Yes. I. I, I we'll we'll just talk about it later in a right. future we'll, session.
1: We'll come on to that later.
0: But I mean, yeah. because it is you know. No, I'm going to stop myself. The point is, I wanted to just give you that anecdote to say that anarchism yeah. can have a salutary effect on. Political discourse with strangers, yeah,
1: yeah. I, which is good, and I, I'm not d- denying that it can, and or that it will. M- my concern, as I said at the outset, about uh, in this part of the conversation, was that it can be, it can already lead people to what they've con- uh, previously concluded. That's my concern. Sure, right. They've already come to some conclusion about anarchism, good or good or bad, and demo- and democrat or democracy. I don't think quite has has that baggage uh yet anyway um no. there was something i was going to point out to you oh yeah so as you're reading in what hath trump Wrought, you'll see you'll see my problems arising with labels so sure. i have a couple of chapters on socialism for the 21st century and i think rory rory and i have a disagreement about this whether capitalism can exist with socialism.
0: Oh yes, I happen to think it can. Markets, right?
1: Yeah, I happen to think it can. Uh, And again, it's part of that part of the bleeding. (laughs) So when I taught ideologies, I taught both socialism and I taught capitalism as as ideologies. Uh, And I I think there's a way that they can play together nicely. They Mm. can be they can play on the aisle of Misfit Toys or whatever the hell it's called. without without killing each other
0: i really thought that was a reference you would get because it's like an old fucking rankin and bass uh production from the 60s i don't even know what rankin and bass oh my god are what is it it's like a cartoon and puppetry outfit from uh from the 60s i think it's rankin and bass is how you say it it's two names but I, they, yeah they made they made like the the original hobbit uh, cartoon adaptations they made Dude, this rude i am the so root.
1: much older than that i
0: yeah i guess i guess I, that
1: that yeah you yeah.
0: yes this is part
1: of the charm <laughs> of engaging with someone a generations removed from me because yes the references uh at, at some point may not make any sense and whether <laughs> we want to then explain what they are depends so the, the the island of misfit toys is a is a great image for me Mm -hmm. I have no idea where it comes from or what it means within the context of the show, but I don't care.
0: (laughs) Well, that'll be your homework for the next episode. I'll send you a YouTube link. They sing a song about it. It's very educational.
1: Remember, you're talking to the guy who wanted to find a program where you didn't have to do anything anybody told him.
0: Yeah, I agree. I try to do the same. So
1: homework, that's not happening.
0: Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I guess since you mentioned it, I we should have maybe front loaded this in our earlier biographical conversation. But especially for people who are listening, it might not be as apparent. There's about what forty years gap between us. Yeah. Is that right? I'm 32. Yeah, a
1: little, a little, yeah, a little bit less. So we're talking yeah. about two generations yep. separating us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which I think is uh, is a good metaphor for crossing the divide
0: yes because yeah,
1: we've you're a what are you i'm a baby boomer and you're a i'm a millennial you're a millennial yep
0: are you sure yes because even my sister is a millennial and she's five years older than me millennials so i think in the popular imagination for a variety of reasons millennials has meant for some time now the youngest generation but that's not true because that's now not, there's another distinct generation right. beneath mine that's come up, the, the Zoomers or Generation Z.
1: Generation Z. Okay. And so in, in between you and me is Generation X.
0: Right. Okay. Yes. So yes. so are there dates associated with millennials? the millennials? There's some ambiguity. I've looked into it a little bit. And it, the consensus seems to be basically people be born between 1980 and 2000 1999 so okay that 20 year period roughly okay because the, the the boomer era is pretty well established
1: uh and it's a little less than 20 years so it's 46 to 64 okay is the yeah. boomer era um but this is good so we can completely ignore generation x which is how they've been the whole time right and why shouldn't they be what have <laughs> they done really what, 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 came out of what came out of that disco i don't know they all came out of
0: that <laughs> I think that's boomers you can't lay that at the feet Yeah, is it boomers They were grunge they, did, they had some good music They were grunge
1: so. they were punk grunge, emo yeah. core, that kind of crap. yes well the good news is my son uh, one of my sons is was deeply into the uh, into the punk band scene grunge mm. punk band, emo core all that all that stuff so that's the way I, I can bring myself along. So you're informed on that to an extent Oh no, well, no well, no, I can just throw <laughs> throw around some names and labels.
0: Well, yeah, you dropped emo core, which I don't know many people I, seventy plus that can drop that. so yeah, that was pretty good.
1: Well, he yeah had an emo core band, so that's how I know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but there's a there's just a vast, vast abyss that's a black hole for me where i'm I i will not know anything about bands, singers, shows,
0: right whatever and likewise for me uh, you yeah know, but but it's interesting because you have those connections through your children to the younger generations and i have some awareness of older things through my close relationship growing up with my grandparents so um yeah and we'll meet in the middle a little bit but i guess right I where, wanted... well we'll meet in the middle well
1: where we will both just throw up our hands going i don't know <laughs> yeah <we> don't <laughs> i don't know <laughs> what that means <laughs>
0: Yes, the, the uh, but I want to turn in the time we have left to uh, talk about, so tying some things together. You know, we both come, grew up in uh, Western Pennsylvania in the Appalachian area, although you are more urban than me. And this area, this region is, is generally associated with, you know, it's the so-called Rust Belt now. It's associated with Trumpism. Right. Uh, and, and, and this sort of very regressive strain of conservatism. And I was reading in What Hath Trump Brought, and I have to say I was surprised, pleasantly surprised by this because I didn't know that this was your position. You say a few times, first of all, I should say, I've only made it through section one of the book. So that's like five chapters. Um, but you mention a few times that we have to acknowledge that in point of fact, we do not have shared values with these folks. If we ever did, that's an open question. Maybe we did, but we definitely don't now. And we have to cut the cord, cut them loose in some fashion. And so I'm curious, I'll, I'll speak for a little bit longer about like wh- how I take that, but I'm curious so you can get your gears turning, like what you mean by that and what you see as the move forward from that. Because when I hear that, like I agree with it in in a significant sense, but then I also think, you know, I have family and friends, some of whom I have long disassociated myself from for these reasons va- over values and politics, and the abusive nature of these politics, and that abuse manifests in a very personal way when people hold these beliefs. I think, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I know. So there's many, many people like that, but there's also people like my grandmother, people like myself, people like my sister who come from this region and may in some sense be steeped in this culture, but who can be reached and educated or who simply may not just may not have a robust or sophisticated politics. And so it's very surface level for them, but they're super nice and compassionate in their daily lives, you know, things like that. So because I was really struck by something you wrote about how if we have to be careful in reaching out to these people that when we, that when we take their hand, they don't pull us into their, you know, sort of sphere, right. You know, we're not, we're not contaminated or changed by them. And so I guess I'm just, you know, that's, I'm pondering, like, what is the strategy? What is the approach? And maybe you answer this later in the book, you know, give some sense of your thoughts on this, but you know, do we, do we let them secede? Do we separate from them? Do we exterminate them? You know, I'm I'm speaking obviously facetiously here, but like, you know, what do we do? What the fuck do we do with these insane people who have truly succumbed to cult mentality and behavior who are unreachable period, at least in any practicable uh, sense, any on any timeline that matters to anyone alive today, you know, what the fuck do we do? That's my question to you.
1: (laughs) Well, this has been a great show, Rory. (laughs) Thanks very much for making me part of it. Um, I wrote a piece a few weeks ago. I don't remember the title of it. Um, But the gist was, how do you free people from the Trump cult?
0: Right, you wrote about it again, I saw it. Gaslighting piece just today. Yeah, I just yeah. wrote
1: a yeah, piece on Gaslighting 101.
0: Yep. Um, but in the piece,
1: uh the piece about freeing people from the Trump cult, and I can't remember the title, it's on medium.com. I sent this piece to my brother. I sent him all of my things. He he is a, an interesting person. He is a, a provocateur. Mm. His politics are our center more center left than center right but pretty damn center so i sent it to him and i said what do you think and he wrote back and he said well this is obvious (laughs) in a kind of duh so i wrote him and i said yes it may be obvious but who is saying it right and my answer is nobody's saying it. and here's the gist of it leave them alone (laughs) just leave them alone because part of it is when you attempt to rescue people from the Trump cult, or the alt-right, or AON, or whatever it is that QAnon. You, QAnon, whatever, whatever it is, you end up almost by definition, insulting people by suggesting that the values they hold are not right values. You can't really believe that. You can't really believe the things that are saying. Right? You don't really want Trump
0: forever. <laughs> you you don't, don't want to bow to his golden idol at yeah, you, or whatever. You
1: don't really mean it. Right. You don't really mean that you would be willing to overturn the election or you'd be willing, as happened earlier on, to postpone the election if Trump and the Republicans asked you to do it. You don't really believe it. Yes, they do believe it. Yeah. And I think those beliefs come out of a set of values that they either have held or now hold. And my attitude is leave them alone. Notice, as, as an editorial aside, there's nobody on the right suggesting that they should figure out why Biden voters and Hillary Clinton voters vote the way they do and hold the values they do. Nobody's right. suggesting that. Right. They're not reaching out to us. They don't care right? But because they think either they're happy with what they've got or they're right or we're crazy, which is pretty much
0: a combination of all of it. But then doesn't what you just said point out the problem in leaving them alone, which is that they are actively seeking to control and perhaps even truly exterminate their political opponents? I'm not saying resist, not resist. Okay, but I'm saying leave them
1: alone. Now, they come after you. They come after our democratic system, our institutions. Yes. Then you have to resist. You have to fight back. The position about leaving them alone is simple, and I laid it out in this, this article about free, freeing people from QAnon and, and the Trump cults. Right? right. Just Democrats, just do what you promise to do, which we're now seeing is, could be difficult with Biden and the White House, but just do what you promise to do. Because it doesn't matter if, you, if these people are in QAnon or they're in the coal mines where you grew up or their doctors and so it doesn't matter. Is this going to help people improve their lives? And just rest on that. Just do what you promised. And as people's mm-hmm. lives get better, I think they will see that their lives are
0: getting better. Right. Well, that's and- the, that's why Bernie was successful in my opinion, it's because he cut through all that, at least in 2016 and spoke to exactly what you just identified. I mean, he saw tremendous success in the Rust Belt I think for that reason. Yeah, but he w- he was speaking to to people's needs. The needs Material don't go. Needs. Yeah, the needs
1: don't go away because people are on the left or the right. Right. In fact, we can. The, the needs are the same. Uh, now we might say, yes. Well, as as capital D Democrats, we want to see unions revitalized. Yeah, I think we do, and I don't know that all workers agree with that. I think many would, but that again isn't the issue. This what what is going to help people covid relief is going to help people (laughs) ending student debt is going to help people uh a living wage increasing the minimum wage will help people now as you'll see with me uh i don't know if you read stalking white crows yeah but i (laughs) i argue for ubi well in fact you read it as a manuscript thank you very much i acknowledge you for doing that (laughs) <laughs> I argue for UBI and because all the studies indicate that it doesn't have the effect that people say that people fear it will, that it will drive people to become takers and never work again and not want to work. All <laughs> right. the, the- studies all the studies across the globe show the opposite of that. Of course. And so, we
0: also know it theoretically and psychologically, whether you want to look at Maslow or talk about Marx uh, and the idea, you know, that we could fish in the morning and write poetry in the evening you know like people are yeah. not going to just become lazy murderous assholes no if they have their basic needs met
1: <laughs> that's exactly right they, they, they want their basic productive. needs met who and, and people want to be able to meet their basic needs and i think that cruts, cuts across all ideologies so when i say leave the trump supporters alone i mean that just enact what you promised to do and i think their lives will be better and i think as you were saying many of them can be reached many of them can be touched and they may even come to see that the positions they were holding don't matter or even better don't make any sense and and maybe they'll come to laugh about that uh that's that's what i meant by leave them alone but it also it also means honoring the values they hold yeah uh and i talked about that in in what hath trump wrought um now when you do that, you're absolutely right. My position that I just described is leave them alone, but enact the policies that you think will help people because we believe it will help everybody. We're not suggesting, as Trump did, that if you live in a blue state, you're not going to receive federal aid because you're a Democrat opposing Trump. Right. It doesn't matter if they're in what state people are in. They need help. People in Texas, it doesn't matter that their governor is... is uh, I think going in absolutely the wrong direction.
0: I oh, mean, uh, easing the mandate. Easing the mandate.
1: Michael yeah. Moore. Maybe he was being sarcastic, but Michael Moore tweeted out, "Well, then they don't. They won't get the vaccine. That, that's uh, just crazy." Yeah. You know, people need help.
0: Yeah, that's right? the wrong attitude. That's yeah, so, the us versus them. You know, team sports. Yeah, attitude.
1: that's a, that's just feeding into that. Now, on the other hand, let me say <laughs> that when I said, "In what hath Trump wrought." uh honor people's values i was saying pull away from them right don't let yourself get grabbed and pulled into the vortex well how far back do we pull well i have a couple chapters where i'm talking about secession
0: right yeah i saw you mentioned it in the chapters i read already but hadn't delved into it
1: yeah and and i will but i think you'll see that in section three of the book i come to a different conclusion but i took uh, secession seriously both as a political maneuver and as a constitutional maneuver can it be done ought ought we to do it is one question can it be done is another uh and you can see if you're pulling away from these people you say i i don't want anything to do with them well let's do the michael moore let's just cut off the red states you know let's see how they how they fare with no federal aid any longer
0: let's Uh, see how long their power grid stays up when it's deregulated even more
1: yeah Exactly. But right now, my position is for the Democrats, just enact what you're promising, you know, health care for all. Right.
0: But of course, we won't we won't actually see that. That's that. that, And that's why I see I still see at least two problems with what you're suggesting. And, And one strain is is exactly what I just said, which is that the Democrats only posture I mean, Bernie Sanders, if he were president, he would actually be working to enact these, although he may not have succeeded. You know, it took FDR, uh, you know, it was not easy even for someone like FDR who had uh, a different set of background conditions and also came from the upper class, et cetera, et cetera. Well, right.
1: And we understand that the New Deal rests on surrendering the South to the segregationists. Right. That was the price to be paid for the New Deal. Yes. Now, Bernie, uh, let's assume that everything remained the same, right? So the Senate is 50-50 with the vice president breaking the tie. Right. Uh, The House is the way the House is, but Bernie's in the White House. How different would things look? Well, uh, assuming because he was elected, people are terrified that it's Bernie Sanders in the White House, even though he was painted as a socialist and a crazy person. It just turns out, as Rory knows well, the policies he introduced in 2016, 2015, 2016, which might have been considered at the time fringe politics and fringe policies, were now very popular. Right. So would he be willing to do what we haven't seen Joe Biden do yet, and that is exert maximum political pressure on people like Kristen Cinema, Kirsten, Kristen, what's her name?
0: I always forget. I think it's Kirsten, but I, I
1: think it's right. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. Can you ratchet up the pressure on them politically to get them in in the caucus to come along? Can Chuck Schumer? Can. can Chuck Schumer do it? I, I think there's political pressure
0: on these Bernie people. You claimed- can them Bernie claimed that he would. He said uh, he basically said he would go hold rallies in those states and whip up, you know, local popular resistance and opposition, and essentially yeah. leading to primarying these these politicians like Manchin. like West Virginia, for example, is is overwhelmingly. I mean, not only does it have a rich working class history and labor movement history, but even recently, with the especially with the teacher strikes there um there's there's fertile ground for mobilization Absolutely, in... you,
1: if you look at the history of the west virginia coal mine coal miners mm-hmm. these were not just radicals these were extreme radicals these were the wobblies <laughs> right. right these are the iww these yes. are people who didn't fuck around but they were they were serious
0: You're right and they had um, violent confrontations with absolutely the did In fact, and yet, I, I read that the first time The U.S. military or government deployed airplanes in a in a military strike was in West Virginia against striking uh, laborers.
1: I mean, these people, when they talk about putting your life on the line, they were doing it. Uh, So, yeah, they've got a rich labor history. And if Bernie had done that, Bernie had succeeded. uh, I, I have no doubts he would have done it you know that my problem with Bernie wasn't Bernie as much as it was the campaign he ran in
0: 2016 or 2020, 2020.
1: It was just, it was self-defeating.
0: He botched the 2020 campaign. Yeah.
1: He screwed it up. Uh, I think he might've been able to win the the, the nomination anyway. um, We're getting off topic here. I'm sure we'll come back to Bernie. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But yeah. So when I said, leave them alone, I meant just honor the fact that they have values that they have that they hold and hold genuinely so
0: show some respect to them yeah in the in their person basically take them at face value and take them seriously these are their values this is it's incompatible with ours and so we have to distance or separate from them
1: well we have to yes we have to honor that when they pulled up their signs saying keep the government out of my medicare (laughs) that we we don't try to argue them out of the position we simply try to pass legislation that will have a positive effect on their lives uh now the 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 dilemma here is it will be painted as excuse me as paternalism sure (laughs) fine (laughs) paint it whatever however you want it's just trying to to help people meet their basic needs. That's really what it is.
0: So, OK, I think I'm understanding a little better what you're saying. You're you're when you say leave them alone, you're essentially saying, politically speaking, just fucking ignore them. Just just do what we need to do. Implement the agenda. Forget them. And yes, and we, it will we, impact them positively in ways right. that will produce changes, good changes down the road. Right. Not not
1: act the way republicans would act and cut them off right just leave them alone and and pass policies that you're pretty confident will enhance their lives sure make their their lives and the prospects of their lives better and hope that they see what has been done and this is the this is the massive problem we're facing right now that if the democrats cave on the minimum wage and uh College debt, and the Medicare stimulus, for
0: all. The checks that we're supposed to get that were supposed to be two thousand and now well, they're the fourteen, relief. and maybe we'll get them in June. Like, yeah, there's gonna that, be pitchforks at the fucking you know yeah, White well, House here.
1: Well, uh,
0: there probably won't be, or there should be. <laughs> but what there
1: will be is a change in power in 2022.
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely. The, the Democrats will get wiped
1: out. Yeah. Yeah. They'll lose both both houses. Uh, both chambers, and and uh, then nothing's going to be done, which is you know so ironic, right? Because there's going to be then no chance of any of this passing uh, if the Republicans are in charge of the Congress. But yeah, that's so. That's
0: what I meant. Okay, well, that's great. And I think I I have much more that I want to talk about and think about going forward, future conversations on that, because yeah, I just think it's a really central issue, and it, something i just want to mention is there's this epistemic or epistemological divide that is i think that for me is the is the obstacle that is most sort of urgent for us to overcome the media spheres basically let's just say trumpsters on one side non-trumpsters on the other loosely speaking this these cults of information because democrats are not immune to this you know i know we have different views on russiagate um right but but even even i will say like there's there was some fishy shit going on there and it deserved to be investigated etc but it became very much i think a Sort of con- quasi conspiracy theory or hegemonic narrative that sort of bounded a, an epistemic community, the Democrats, very rigidly, not unlike QAnon, et cetera. Because you know, I'm just bringing this up, and we don't have to delve into it now because we're about done. Right. But I'm just bringing it up as food for thought uh, and future consideration because. I see that fueling radicalization on both sides much more so on the conservative and regressive and fascistic side. But yeah, the, the epistemic divide is something that I'm concerned. Do you have any thoughts about that briefly?
1: Uh, Not briefly. Okay. But you get what Um, I'm saying, I guess. I get what you're saying. I have a lot to say about that. So I will save it for a different episode, but it also brings up, uh, doesn't bring into focus, but, perhaps puts our peripheral vision on a related topic for me that i wanted to get your take on sure and that is the uh what's sometimes described as the woke left the woke (laughs) culture yeah and that spills over into media what's going on with media um but that's that's i think important because there i see i think i see a generational divide Mm about what's taken seriously and what isn't. So I, I, I think there's something important there as well. I Um, agree.
0: And I think, and that connects with cancel culture too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think those are, I mean, I think they're inflated problems, especially by conservatives, like Jim Jordan is trying to push some kind of congressional investigation into the harms of cancel culture because he enabled rape at his university and is, you know, concerned about being canceled. Uh, but in the public sphere i agree i agree woke culture cancel culture are very real concerns yeah that have generational implications yeah and i I think but i
1: think they i think there might be well republicans are so eager to to jump on what they see as any opening on the left of hypocrisy or self-contradiction um so it's hard to say whether there's an epistemic divide there, but we'll we'll chat. There's stuff there. And yes. then of course we have to talk about the filibuster at some point.
0: <laughs> yes. You mean whether it should be, exist or what should be done?
1: Yeah, both of those things. Fair. Why it exists, should it exist, what's to be done. Happy to talk about that.
0: All right. Oh. All right. Are we signing well, off? Is
1: this what's happening?
0: Yeah, fuck it. I'm out of coffee. We've been going for right. two hours. It's That's yeah,
1: That should be our limit. Two hours. I agree. All right. Thanks, everyone,
0: for listening. Peace.
1: But let me just say to the listeners, uh, not to listeners so much, but to viewers, if there are any of you, um, the way my camera is set up, when I look at Rory, it looks like I'm looking, I don't know, down into the side. I don't know where <laughs> the hell I'm looking. So when I look up here,
0: it's, I guess it's pretty good yeah but then becomes creepy because you're looking direct eye contact it, I, have I have
1: nowhere to look other than right into the camera or at <laughs> rory and both of them i think have a, a creepy element <laughs> so if any of you are out
0: there and you want to comment let me know which is less creepy huh, yeah we need some viewer feedback here we're yeah. still working out the kinks episode one i look forward to um doing this again Likewise, and building on the conversation. Yeah. All right. The end. All right. Sayonara. Thus concludes the first encounter of the bullshit artists recorded on March 3rd, 2021. Thanks for listening. And we sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast from your preferred service. So you can be sure to catch the next chapter when it drops. I'd also like to take a moment now to comment on the sound effects, music, and images used in today's podcast and in each episode of the podcast going forward. The dialogue that opens and closes the podcast features the voices of Mel Brooks and Beatrice Arthur, taken from Brooks's film, History of the World Part One. With the greatest respect for and admiration of Mr. Brooks, I believe that the inclusion of this dialogue constitutes a fair use under U.S. copyright law. And of course, the copyright for the film remains with Brooks Films Limited. As for the music, the intro and outro sequences include excerpts from the album Kind of Bloop, which is a note for note chip tune adaptation of Miles Davis's jazz classic Kind of Blue*. The excerpted track, So What? was created by Astor AKA Chris Del Camino and the album was produced by Andy Baio. These excerpts are used with express written permission from Mr. Baio. Finally, For those who may be watching the video version of this podcast, the background images for me and Jack are taken from Sakura Park, located at 500 Riverside Drive, Manhattan, New York City. The photo behind me shows International House to the north of the park, and the photo behind Jack shows Riverside Church to the south of the park. Both photographs were taken by Shinya and are licensed by Creative Commons BY 2.0. All right, I think that covers everything. And again, if you'd like to support our work monetarily and receive regular updates, please visit my personal Substack page at the thestillesthour, stillest hour, S T I L L E S T H O U R, the stillest hour. I'm Rory Verado, and Jack and I will be back in conversation again two weeks from the date of this recording. Take care and be well. Thank <laughs> you.
1: Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week?